0: Lately, I have been a little overwhelmed with the power that Jesus holds. Maybe it's because uh, in June, a whole bunch of us went to this little camp in outside of Joplin, Missouri called uh, Camp Siocomo. And there, we actually, the theme of the week was kingdom kind of matched up perfectly with what we've been doing here at Sunnybrook. And we learned what it looked like to be part of God's kingdom, have him reign in our lives as the ultimate authority and how to do work on behalf of his kingdom. Or maybe it's because after those two weeks of camp, high school and then junior high, I had a lot of junior high kids that felt like God was just stirring right in their hearts. And we were able to start having these conversations of what is this gonna look like for him to have more and more authority in your life? What does it look like to submit your life to him? Maybe that's why I'm reminded of the power of Jesus. Or maybe I feel a little overwhelmed by his power because just last week, we journeyed to the mountains of Colorado. We traveled across the longest United States on ramp called Kansas, Kansas up, up, up until the mile high city and then beyond. We twisted and we turned through mountains and valleys. We watched storms roll in and saw stars displayed overhead. And if you have eyes to see, there's no way to miss the power of Jesus and the landscape that surrounds you there. Maybe, just maybe, It's because that entire week, we trekked through the book of the Bible called Ephesians. And that entire book continually points to the power that Christ holds. We are reminded that he has power to adopt us into his family. He has power to unite us as his body. He has power to save us from our wicked, sinful nature. He has power to put us on his team and give us a task. Or maybe. Maybe it's because this sermon from Matthew 28 has been on my mind and in my heart, stirring for a long time. For a long time. The Holy Spirit constantly moving and convicting and empowering me to move in response to the truth revealed in this holy word. We've been in the book of Matthew for a long time, like 19 years or so, and the gospel is finally coming to a close. And once again, I am struck with the authority that Jesus holds. The final words that Matthew records are spoken by the risen Jesus Christ. And he prefaces a command that he's going to give his people with a statement of his authority. You know this, earlier in chapter 28, there are these two women, and they went to the tomb. They wanted to visit Jesus' body. They're in mourning. Okay, And they show up and there's an angel there. And anytime that you read about angels, we know it freaks people out. And so the angel freaks them out. They got really nervous. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I know you've come to see Jesus, but he is not here. He's actually risen. And now you have a job to do. You need to go and tell the disciples, tell all these followers of Jesus that they're supposed to go into Galilee and Jesus will meet them there because that's what he said he would do. And so the girls hurry off. Girls, these women, hurry off sorry, speak to students, these women hurry off and as they hurry off, they're on their way to to meet those disciples and tell them to go into Galilee and Jesus himself shows up to them. And it doesn't speak of fear there, it just speaks of worship. They meet the risen Christ and they fall on their face and they worship him and Jesus says, hey, get up, I have something for you to do. Go and tell my brothers, it's another word for my disciples, go and tell my brothers that they're supposed to meet me in Galilee just as I said, just as I told them to do. To the women, they go. They tell the disciples. And then we find ourselves here in this text. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It starts with this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, the 11 is kind of... It's 11, okay? We kind of, there's lots of commentaries that go back and forth and say that there's more than 11, but the, the text says 11, so that's what we go with typically. Um, the mountain that they're going to is not actually named. The point is not that they're going to necessarily find Jesus, but that they're going with an expectation that Jesus will meet them there because that's what he said they would, that he would do. And he does. And when he does, it says that they saw him and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Worship, we know, is the only proper response to the risen Christ, but some doubted. What a strange thing for Matthew to add here. But some doubted. Some commentaries, they like to think that this is why there must have been more than the 11. Because if some of them doubted, then maybe it was more than those 11 who actually met with Jesus, and then those are the people that doubted. Um, Because it's such a weird kind of Seems like it shouldn't be here. In fact, whenever you quote this text, I'm sure you probably even forget to quote that some doubted, right? So because it's so out of ordinary, I decided maybe we should study this a little bit more, and so I looked up what this word meant. What is is Matthew trying to get at when he says this word? And I realized, actually, that the other time that Matthew uses this word is in chapter 14 of the Gospel. You know the story. Peter's in a boat. Jesus has sent them ahead while he goes up to pray and afterwards since they are far off Jesus decides to meet them when they're already on their way in that boat so Jesus begins to walk on water to meet his disciples the disciples see him off in a distance and they kind of freak out a little bit thinking that he's a ghost Jesus says it's not a ghost it's me it's Jesus and so Peter says okay well if it's really you let me come to you on the water and so Jesus says okay Peter get out of the boat get out of the boat And Jesus, or and Peter does. But as Peter is walking towards the Son of God and clearly only able to do so because of the power that Jesus holds, Peter's faith begins to waver as he sees the winds and the waves and he sinks. And Jesus pulls him up out of the water and he says, Why do you doubt? Same word. Oh, you of little faith. The idea behind this word. It's not so much, I don't believe it all. It's this idea of uncertainty. I'm just a little uncertain. It's hesitation. It's I don't know if, I think this might be too good to be true sort of thing. Now, whether the disciples' response is more of a hesitation or actual doubt, it is kind of surprising. <laughs> I mean, in light of all of Jesus' resurrection promises that he's already made, and then they had this encounter where they they've dealt with the testimony of these two women that said they saw him, I mean, remember the women's response? Worship. And yet here, worship is mixed with hesitation. Is this too good to be true? But this text is not really about the disciples. It's really not. And despite the hesitation, despite the doubt, despite the abandonment of Judas... And the three times Peter has denied him, despite the way the disciples had fled the scene with their tail between their legs, Jesus comes to them and he speaks to them regardless. And what Jesus says is this. It says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, or more properly put, all of the time, to the end of the age. Did you catch the word all there? It's used four times in the last three sentences or in the last three verses of the gospel. The word all is this key word that's used in the New Testament. And it teaches us the totality, the wholeness, the completeness of God's work in creation and the completeness of his salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans would say it this way, for from him and through him and to him are all things. God's plan is not one that's incomplete. His mission is direct and his power is full and whole. And here in chapter 28, verses 17 through 20, all these little partial glimpses of Jesus's universal authority, they're brought together and they're tied into a bow in a final declaration to his disciples. And that's the first promise that Jesus actually makes. That the precedent for what he is about to say stems from the authority that he has as the rightful king. Did you notice the disciples don't speak in this last section? Their role is to listen, to understand, and to obey. I read a great, a great quote from this guy named Kevin Young. He likes to say it this way, our job is to choose to remain faithful to Jesus. The shape of that faithfulness is God's to determine. It's God's to determine, to listen, to understand, and to obey. That's our job. I've heard a a lot of people quote this passage and skip right past that first line of what Jesus says about his authority. They jump right to, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. The problem is that you cannot grasp the point and the weight of this command if you don't start with the authority of Jesus. You just can't. It's the key to understanding this entire text. And I fear that we miss the authority of Jesus in our lives all the time. We miss it all the time. I heard a professor um, say it to me this way in college. He said, if Jesus has all the authority, how much do you have? If he has all the authority, how much do you have? I mean, how do you make decisions? Do you seek the Lord's will? Do you submit your plans to him? Or, Or let me make this more specific for you. Do you ask God what his plans for your family are? How many children you should have, if you should adopt, or if you shouldn't, or do you just kind of have this ideal, this is what my family should look like, so I'm just gonna try to make it happen this way. Do you ask God what specific people you should invest in that overlap in your life, or do you just pick people who are kind of like you to befriend Or maybe you just kind of ignore community altogether and you turn inward towards your family. Everyone else's family and issues, even those within the body of Christ, those are their problems, those aren't mine. Do you ask God before you spend your money to lead you to be a good steward of the money that he has entrusted you with? Or do you see what you want and you just go get it? No regard for what God may want you to do with that money. Is gathering with the body of believers a priority for you? Or do you come and you go when it's convenient? How do you serve in the body of Christ? Who have you spoken to about Jesus lately? When was the last time you made praying with your spouse or your kids or your friends a priority? I mean, do you feel convicted at all that you go through life and you fail to recognize Jesus as King? Submitting and asking for his will in every area? I mean, these questions weigh heavy for me. I've been thinking about them all summer long. And if you are like me, then there's a lot of repenting that needs to take place for the lack of submission that I have to Jesus in so many areas, areas of my life. What is our problem? I mean, are we too busy? Too tired? Confused? I mean, Jesus makes it pretty clear. He demands our life. Is it hard? Yeah, he tells us it's gonna be hard, but is it complicated? No, not really, not really. The only thing that it really seems to rub against is our selfishness and our pride and our entitlement to feel that we can live and act and behave however we wish. It's my body, it's my money, it's my family. Except, except when you are a follower of Jesus, you no longer belong to the world. You no longer belong to yourself, you belong to Jesus. It's not your body, it's not your money, it's not your family, you belong to Jesus. And throughout the gospel, there have been hints and more than hints that Jesus is more than just a human preacher or even a Messiah. He is related to God, a son is to a father, and in so many ways, Matthew has allowed us to see him acting with this divine authority that he speaks with here. In his coming, do you realize God has come to visit his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And here, at the end of the gospel then, we find the culmination of this idea that we've been studying this whole time of kingship. I know it was a long time ago, but remember the very first message from the book of Matthew. Do you remember? It's a Davidic royal genealogy of Jesus Christ. Then, we see that because this king was born, these magi search to find him, to worship him. Why? He's king. And Herod in chapter two seeks to kill him. Why? Because he's king. And we find him as he grows in the temple. Why is he at home there? I just don't know, I don't get it. He withstands temptation from Satan himself. We see that he has the power to forgive sins, the power to heal the sick, the outcasted, the weak, and the dead. He speaks as one with authority and people seem to recognize that about him. He's unafraid of any power that comes to stand against him. He has this royal ride. It's kind of this this culmination in scripture in chapter 21 of Matthew where he has this royal ride into Jerusalem and he's on this donkey and people are praising him and waving these branches and saying, Hosanna, yes, you are the savior. We wanna recognize you for who you rightfully are. And then after that awesome ride in, in chapter 21, Jesus' claim to kingship takes a turn. And since then, it's been a matter of accusation and mockery from his enemies. In fact, at the end of his life, they, they take him to trial they beat him. They put a crown on his head that's mocking. They spit on him. They whip him. And then to put it all um, kind of this kind of big moment at the end is they, they put this, this sign up there that says, Hail, King of the Jews. Mocking. Really? This is this who you say you are? All right. Hail, King of the Jews. But now, In this final scene, the true nature of that kingship is in these final moments is revealed in this gospel. It stands far above the local politics that Herod was afraid of and extends far beyond the people of Israel that the Pharisees might've been afraid of. It's a universal kingship of Jesus Christ, of the Son of Man. And this risen Christ, he knows why he reigns. He knows his purpose. He says, all authority of heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The purpose of the risen Christ is to empower his church, to make his authority known in every culture so that worshipers would be one out of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And when we sin, and as we partake in communion and as we confess and as we sing and as we spend our money and raise our children and prioritize our schedules, as we live every single day, the Lord will see if he is worshiped or not. He will see if he is worshiped or not. not. My cousin says it this way, he is owed our holiness, our affection, and our worship. He is owed our lives. He is more powerful than Herod and the Pharisees and Rome, and even the disciples anticipated. He is in fact, king. And in a couple of weeks, this sign will come down, but the truth will remain. Jesus is king, king. He has all the authority of heaven and earth, and he says, because of the authority that I have, I'm gonna issue a command. Go and make disciples of all nations. The great commission from Jesus, it's expressed not in terms of the means to proclaim the good, ne- to proclaim the good news, but of the end, to make disciples. It's not enough that the nations hear the message. They must also respond with the same wholehearted commitment that was required of those who became disciples of Jesus during his ministry. Discipleship. It's a prominent theme in the life and teaching of Jesus. To be a disciple was not merely to be a frequent listener to the teaching of Jesus, but to literally be with him as he moves about in his ministry accomplishing his mission. So, lots of people like to say, if I'm supposed to make disciples, how do I do that? Well, Jesus gives us a little summary here. He says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Note, he inserts himself right there in that Trinitarian equation, in his rightful place seems that baptism is sort of like this initiation process into the body of Christ as the post-resurrection church. It makes me excited because we're gonna have a few here today. Baptism being the people the way are initiated into the family of God. And then he says this, teach them to obey, that's what observe is, teach them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. To be a disciple is to obey the teachings of Jesus. Teaching commands of Jesus is one thing, parents. (laughs) Teaching obedience to those commands is a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different ballgame. One that only really makes sense in light of the reigning authority, by the way, of Jesus Christ. I mean, what's happening here is that this almost imperceptible little tiny mustard seed, it's about to grow into a mighty tree. The kingdom of heaven is to be established over all the earth. The baptism, which John had originally instituted as a symbol of a new beginning for a repentant Israel, it's now to be extended to people from all nations. And at the heart of this new community of faith is the risen Jesus himself, as he said he would be in chapter 18. They're gonna be his disciples. They're gonna obey his commands. They're gonna be sustained by his unending presence among them. This new international community over all the world, that was gonna be his ecclesia, his church, because it's he who now holds all the authority in heaven and on earth. An authority, by the way, that's greater than the authority Satan offered him in chapter three. And possibly, most remarkably of all, this human Jesus of the hills of Galilee is now to be understood, not as the preacher or the promoter of faith, but as himself, its object. The object of faith, the object of our worship. And behold, he says, I will be with you to the end of the day of the age, I will be with you always, better translated, I'll be with you all the time to the end of the age. Do you remember what I said earlier? I said that to be a disciple was not merely to be a frequent listener to the teachings of Jesus but to be with him as he moves about in his ministry. This is why the disciples freak out a little bit in John 16. Jesus is gonna come to them and tell them that he has to go away and they start to freak out. And I have this favorite preacher, this old man who's not here anymore, um, his name's Fred Craddock. And whenever he teaches on this passage in John 16, he has this great analogy. He said, he said, it's kind of like when kids are playing this little game and a babysitter shows up and they think, oh, it's a party, she's coming to play with me. And so then they all play this little game and then all of a sudden the little kid looks up and they realize that mom and dad have grabbed their coats and their hats and their purses and their wallets. And the disciples' questions to Jesus when he says he's going to have to leave, yeah, little kids ask the same questions of their parents. The questions are the same. They say this, where are you going? Can I come with you? And who's going to stay here with us? Who's going to stay here with us? And if you read that text in John 16, Jesus promises not to leave them abandoned, He promises them his paraclete. He promises them the Holy Spirit. The presence of Jesus goes with us as we do his work. This is the second promise that he makes. He goes with us, before us, behind us. He hems us in from all sides. There is nowhere we can go that he is not already there at work. The presence of our master Jesus I think is quite possibly the most crucial element of discipleship. I am one lucky girl. I have an incredible father. One of the most critical things that God has taught me about his presence has come through my father. His last words to me as uh, my youth minister, he was my youth minister for a long time, his last words to me were actually from Ephesians 5 about taking off our old self, putting that to death and putting on the righteousness that Christ has for us. He preached my baccalaureate sermon when I graduated from college. He came and his message to me there was um, that there's this pearl of great price and it's hidden in a field, it's a treasure, it's called the kingdom. And when you stumble across it or when you find it, you sell everything you have and you go buy that because it's worth it every time. And then later, after I graduated, um, I was actually ordained right here, which means that basically that the elders come and the ministers come and they pray over me and they say, we want you to do work on behalf of the kingdom. And my dad preached that message too. And he told me then that he said, Morgan, you guard your life and you guard your doctrine closely. That was his challenge to me. But more than the things that he said, it was that he was present. I was in ministry in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it was really rough. Um, The loneliest time I've ever experienced so far. I remember when it was time to um, come home. I wasn't even quite sure how to transition out of my time there because it was just pretty dark. So I called my dad. <laughs> That's what I do. And you know what he did? He booked a flight and he came to New Orleans and he walked around to see what life was like for me there and then he brought me home. I remember specifically walking through the French Quarter on our last night and I just remember asking him If all of this was just a waste, is it just a waste? And he spoke life to me, guys. He didn't speak his own words. They wouldn't have done a whole lot of good. But he spoke to me words of God from this book. He reminded me of the mission of Jesus. And I realized in that moment that more important than my father coming at the end was that Jesus was present the entire time. So I came home and I started working in another ministry. And I remember this specific day where I was thrown for this huge loop in ministry. I felt kind of like a failure, and it took everything in me not to just quit. And that's what it's like whenever you're trying to follow the Lord, whenever you're trying to do his will. There's just going to be moments when you just want to quit. It's just hard. And I didn't know what to do, so I called my dad. It's a pattern. It was a Wednesday, and he left. He was actually cooking hamburgers for you all, but he left. And he came to Owasso, where I was, and he fought on my behalf. And he and my mom told me together that I am not allowed to quit. That I am not allowed to quit at what God has called me to do. That is not an option. And I was reminded as they came back to Stillwater and left me there, that Jesus' presence would sustain me there my father over a lot of time has weaned me off of his presence onto the presence of Christ. I don't know what it is. I really don't. But when Jesus is all you have, you realize real quickly that Jesus is all you need. It's just the reality of a situation. When he's all you have, you realize he is all you need. Jesus promises us his presence I remember one time, my dad was gone. He's not Jesus. (laughs) He was gone. And um, Jim is a great, he's great. He loves to disciple the staff and their spouses. And so he always tells spouses whenever their spouse is gone to do ministry, he always says, hey, if you need anything, you let me know and I'll be there. And he means it, he means it. And so when, my, mom, when my, my dad goes away, my mom likes to do projects around the house and it's kind of this fun game for her. She loves to fix things up or paint a wall here or take down something there. And then she likes to make my dad guess when he gets home, what's different. <laughs> my dad doesn't like the game, my mom loves it. She thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> And um, so she, that particular time my aunt had come to town and my aunt knows how to, has some bad skills with like some carpentry and stuff. So her and my mom and I were fixing up the living room and we're putting in a mantle and we're painting the fireplace and we moved the TV over to this new spot. And when we do that, we realize there's this huge kind of entertainment center type thing where the TV was and it needs to get upstairs. And we can't lift it. We tried and it was pretty comical. It didn't budge at all, like at all. And so we're sitting there like, okay, how do we do this? My mom really wants it to be complete when my dad gets home. So we're thinking, what do we do? And so my mom says, I know, I'll just call Jim. I'll call Jim. He's good on his promise. So she calls him and Jim, you know, Jim, he answers his phone immediately and he just says, okay, Julie, what's wrong? Is everything okay? Do I need to call Paul? What's going on? What can I do? everything is fine. We are just moving this piece of furniture upstairs and we can't get it there on our own. Do you think you could help us move it? We might need a few guys. Oh yeah, I got it, of course I got it, I got it. I'm just gonna grab a couple guys here. And so he does, he grabs Kyle Butler and Ryan Vincent and they head over to my mom and dad's house and Jim gets there barely before they do. And he walks into the house. And um, <laughs> when he walks in, my mom, my aunt and I aren't sure if he really thought he needed other people when he did. And so we said, I think my mom and my aunt said, Jim, did you bring any help? And you know Jim, okay? I want you to picture him right now, doing this walk. Okay, (laughs) that's kind of how he walks, okay? And he walks in and I'm not kidding, guys. When we asked him if he brought any help, he walks in, he starts to take off his shirt and he says, the help has arrived. (laughs) That's what he says. (laughs) It's funny, right? But listen, Listen, Jesus promises us his presence and we believe the Holy Spirit is here. Jim is not the Holy Spirit, but the helper has arrived. The Holy Spirit is present. I mean, think about that, really think about that. The Holy Spirit is present in this room right now. And the Holy Spirit is moving he doesn't just sit still like that. He is moving, he's stirring in you and among you and all around you, and it's, it's his, it's this Godhead, this trinity, it's, it's that mission that they have given us and it will be accomplished. He will go with you. Is there really any other assurance you need today than the promise of the presence of Jesus Christ as you do his will? I'm not talking about, man, I just feel really bad, and it makes me feel really good and warm and fuzzy to know that my buddy Jesus will be with me. No, I'm talking about, have you ever stepped out to obey the teachings of Jesus, to join in his mission to redeem the world, to teach and practice obedience to all that he's commanded, and just felt overwhelmed by it all? How can I stick with this, you might say? How can I possibly witness to my friend? I don't know enough. We had a junior girl last week sitting in our circle who said just that. She said, I wanted so bad. I know God had put this opportunity for me to speak on his behalf, for me to preach the gospel and I I didn't take it. I was just so scared that I was gonna mess it up. Let me remind you, it's not your mission. You're joining with what God is already doing. He will see it through. The one who promised is faithful. He does not send me where he will not go with me. He is here, guys, and he's more powerful than anything that Satan can throw our way. His mission will not be thwarted. That assurance is why in our following Jesus, we will be okay. We will be okay. It's that assurance that sustains us as we follow him. In and of ourselves, we would have given up this whole following Jesus thing a long time ago. But it's his power and it's his presence that make all the difference in the world. Jesus himself is our motivation, our power, our assurance as we join him in his mission. He is both our reason for going and our ability to go. When Jesus first came, we started out Matthew, he preached a message. You remember it? His, the message that Jesus preached is repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think that's a good message. One we should probably end with today. Jesus' Jesus's mission applies to all who are followers of him until the end of the age, until he says we are finished. And at Sunnybrook, we like to use that phrase, repent and believe. Or how we say it a lot of times to our students is listen and respond. Listen and respond. So my question for you is what is God doing? He's at work in redeeming the world. He's at work growing his kingdom. He's at work gaining followers and worshipers. He's at work saving people from a life condemned without him. And he's personal. He's doing something in your life right now if you would just have eyes to see him. If you would just for a minute focus your thoughts on his authority and his mission and beg him to give you ears to hear his truth and then, if only then, your heart would just respond. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you don't regularly repent and believe, if you don't regularly listen and respond to the Holy Spirit, Go and make disciples. How? Teach them to, teach them everything Jesus commanded, teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's not a suggestion, people. It's a command from an ultimate authority of the universe for all who believe. And it's possible because of the very presence of that authority that goes with us. Repent and believe. Listen And respond, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. We're gonna pray, and after you're done, I want you to turn your attention to the baptistry. We have three kids last week who heard from the Lord and who have decided to respond. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to come here and save us, Lord. I ask that you give us your wisdom as we follow you. I ask that your Holy Holy Spirit fills us up, and that most importantly, you keep us with you. Amen.
1: We we have the privilege of. Adopting some more people into the family of God today. Jesus's blood has covered sin and we get to celebrate with our brothers today So if you would welcome with me, Mr. Ethan Hicks Ethan do you believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God? Yes And do you commit by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow him with all the days of your life? Yes. It's my honor Baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Bury the Christ and raise the new (laughs) life. Welcome Uriah Kirby. Uriah, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God? Yes. And do you commit to follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit for all of your days? Yes. It's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ, and raised new we go. to be wife. Welcome, Noah Bratton. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes. And do you commit to follow him by the power of the Holy Spirit for all your days? Yes. It's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bear the Christ. It's great As always, as always, we don't want the conversation to end here. If you want to get baptized, if you want to um, be a disciple maker, if you want to submit your life to the authority of Christ, come talk to us. We'll have our ministers, elders up here. And if not, we will see you this week.